Hi, James. Ben, how are you? <laughs> recovering, recovering. It's a Monday morning, not our usual day to record. We actually recorded last week and then decided to sort of save it, which I think was probably a good choice. But in the meantime, it was a holiday weekend here in Taiwan, a four-day weekend. And I thought, you know, take it easy this year, not go anywhere, no trips, sort of stay home, have some friends over. It turns out when you get old like me, staying home, having friends over is a recipe for... <laughs> For feeling very exhausted on Monday morning, we'll just put it that way. Drinking a lot of water, but read into that what you will. I'm glad it's Monday. I'm glad to be on the phone with you. Uh, yeah, so you need the week to recover from the weekend, huh? Basically, getting old, man. I'm, I can't handle this stuff anymore. I'm, I'm telling you. It's been Fleet Week here in San Francisco. So if there's the sound of the heavens opening partway through the show, that's an F-35 swinging down saying hello to everybody on Exponent. Yeah, and if we hear any jets on my end, oh. actually. <laughs> oh, God. I hope, uh, yeah, let's hope they're on my end and not on yours. Speaking of, in so many words, last week, very interesting week, to say the least. I wrote about it on Shatekri, the issue of the China. Make sure to start with the NBA. Apple got involved. But it's something that's sort of been going on for a while. And we've talked about previously. But what sort of kicked this off last week was a tweet by a general manager of the Houston Rockets. The Houston Rockets are a team in the National Basketball Association, which you may not know, despite the the fact you did send a message to us last week saying, I want to talk about basketball. I know. I was very excited about it. I never thought those words would come out of my mouth, let alone to you. Yes. <laughs> but uh, Daryl Morey is the general manager of the Rockets. The Rockets are particularly meaningful because basketball has always been pretty popular in China for a very long time. It was introduced by missionaries like 100 years ago. But the NBA has always been sort of one of the most popular foreign leagues there. And then it really was amped up when Yao Ming was drafted first overall by the Houston Rockets. Yao Ming was a Chinese national, seven foot six, very skilled center, retired. He's a Hall of Famer, is currently the head of the Chinese Basketball League. And so the Rockets were a particularly sort of meaningful team in China. Beyond the fact the NBA is extremely popular, there's actually more people that watch the NBA in China than watch it in the US. And then the Rockets were actually sort of the preeminent team as far as that goes. So all this is to set up Daryl Morey tweeting an image that says, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. Now, Twitter, as you may know, is banned in China. That, of course, does not necessarily stop people from reading Twitter, whether it be via VPN or whatever means. And a, what's the technical term? A shitstorm? Yeah, perfect shitstorm. Of epic proportions was stirred up. You know, I think engendered a sort of atmosphere where a lot of folks started trying to outdo themselves and how they could be more outraged by this tweet. And it spun up this thing where, you know, first sort of the Houston Rockets owner kind of hung more out to dry. And then there was a lot of pressure on the NBA to apologize. The NBA released a sort of mealy mouth statement and the Chinese translation was like different than the English one. And it seemed to be much more apologetic. Lots of pressure sort of sprung up in the U.S. saying like, who is China to like sort of tell a U.S. citizen what to do, by the way, on a network that's not even accessible in China. And Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, did come up with a much stronger statement on Tuesday, I believe, basically saying, we believe in the right to express yourself. That's sort of a core value, and we're not going to go back on that. And meanwhile, China's basically saying, the powers that be, that more needs to be fired. The NBA did ultimately stand its ground. More was not fired. Lots of sponsorships were pulled. We'll see how long that actually lasts. That's sort of an interesting angle here. There was these games that were about to be played in China, NBA preseason games. They were not televised. The games, however, did go on. They were played. The NBA canceled all media availability for the entire week for the players and the coaches. So despite the fact they did sort of really stand their ground for free expression at that particular moment when they had no choice, I would say that the rest of the week was not necessarily 
covered in glory as far as the right to free speech is concerned. Meanwhile, there's lots of stuff going on. U.S. protesters are showing up at NBA games. People are getting kicked out for having Hong Kong signs at like a Philadelphia 76ers game, which could not be more ironic given that the Philadelphia, the sort of birthplace of America and 76ers refers to the beginning of the American Revolution. That was a nice bit of irony. And that was just the NBA. Then we add Apple on top. Yeah. Before we even get off sports, like the one that really got me was ESPN deciding to show a map of China and in it included the contested islands in the South China Sea as part of China. And I was like, wow, I did not expect that. And you're right, Apple. The Apple one also really got me because like a couple of years back, Apple was the one standing their ground on principle during San Bernardino, refusing to give in on principle to give encryption keys, which was a stance that I greatly admired. They were standing up to pressure from both sides of the aisle. It was the Obama administration pushing to get them to put in back doors or decrypt the phone. Trump was just a candidate and he was pushing them too. And there was this moment in time where it's like, no, we're not going to do that. And then just a whole string of news came out this week around Apple. Just It was a Hong Kong live map. App. It's based on crowdsourced information, but it allowed folks in Hong Kong to see where there's a heavy police presence. And at first, Apple pulled it down and then they said it was a mistake and reinstated it. And then they pulled it back down again. But not just that, news came out that when they were green lighting TV shows, they were encouraging folks to make sure that there was nothing in it that could potentially offend China. And I was like, wow. This very principled company standing up for the rights of users, this does not feel consistent with that at all. And as you know, sort of discussed widely last week, this is hardly the first time these sort of events have occurred. There was a Reddit post that listed a huge number of these. We'll put in the show notes. But I mean, this has been going on particularly over the last three to four years where a company says something offensive. This actually happened last week. Tiffany had a picture of a model covering her right eye, which was a photo taken in May. Well, meanwhile, last month, a protester in Hong Kong was hurt in her eye. And so they were accused of supporting the protests, despite the fact that this image was taken you know, months ago. And so they had apologized and pulled it down. You know, we had issues of Mercedes Benz having a tweet that quoted the Dalai Lama and apologizing and pulling it down. You had an issue of Marriott in a survey listing countries where you lived and Taiwan and Hong Kong were separate and distinct entities from China. So they were forced to apologize in the mean. Oh, and Tibet was listed as a separate entity. And meanwhile, some trolley account on Twitter thanks Marriott for supporting Tibet independence and some poor social media manager in Omaha, Nebraska, who likes hundreds of tweets a night, clicks like on the tweet from the Marriott account. And not only does Marriott get barred from China for a week for taking any new bookings, the guy gets fired. You know, this is something that's been happening. All the U.S. airlines no longer list Taiwan as a country because they have to list Taipei or list it as some will list like a province of China. And this is something that is happening again and again, where it's not just that China is controlling information within its borders, something that is obviously this is what we talked about. We talked about China, you know, earlier this year, we talked about the fact that how is it that China gets free reign to sort of enter and compete in the U.S. market when we've been in the situation where the U.S. does not get to compete or free reign in the Chinese market. But what this is all about is about going well beyond that. It's not just that information is being controlled and restricted within China. And by the way, 
I'm actually fairly sympathetic and have been sympathetic to Apple over time as far as its you know relations with China in that if you're operating in a country, you have to follow local laws. Like the government has the guns. That's just the way that it works. But the problem here is the exporting. It's the exportation of censorship. It's the exportation of authoritarianism where it's not just that Daryl Morey was standing in Beijing holding up a sign saying support Hong Kong. It's that we posted a tweet on a network that is banned in China from outside the country, the basic insinuation was fire him or we're going to cost you a lot of money. It feels like these are isolated incidents inside the US. But the crazy thing is, I actually wonder if this is a systematic policy. And the reason that I think that is because the same kind of thing has happened in Australia. So, we talked about ESPN and the South China Sea. Well, there was an Australian politician by the name of Sam Dastyari. He was forced to resign after revelations that he was linked to a Communist Party gentleman by the name of Huang in 2016. The thing that caused the uproar was Dastyari was literally parroting Chinese talking points around the contested islands in the South China Sea, contrary to party policy. And it caused people to start to dig into this. And this political donor from China turns out it given over $3 million to both political parties. And in terms of Apple self-censoring content, again, same thing has happened in Australia. Prominent Australian academic by the name of Clive Hamilton had a book that he was publishing on the impact of China. Chinese influence in Australia had an agreement with a prominent Australian publisher. Just before publication, the publisher reaches out and says, sorry, we can't do this. We're worried about the impact of what the Chinese are going to do to us, wrap us up in lawsuits or other things. He went to two more publishers, had the exact same reaction. Now, eventually he got the book out, but it feels like there is a systematic approach here where Chinese policy, like it's causing self-censorship. This approach is starting to infiltrate systematically into liberal democracies. Oh, yeah. I mean, the self-censorship is kind of comical in some respects. I mean, this made the NBA such a fascinating case that it happened here because the NBA really prides itself on being this very, like, players speak their mind, coaches speak their mind. They get a lot of praise for it. You know, like, the NBA has been very loudly anti-Trump in particular, particularly some players like LeBron James, who was in China this week, and also coaches like Steve Kerr is a very prominent one in the Bay Area. And then asked this week, you know, about what do you think about what's happening? Oh, I, I mean, I don't know. Who could know? It's It was very, very complicated. It's very disappointing for a few reasons. I mean, on one hand, can we be honest about this? I mean, first and foremost, even if you want to say that the situation in Hong Kong is complicated, which we're not going to necessarily legislate what's going on there right now, but I don't think it's very complicated to think that a NBA general manager should not be fired for a tweet, right? Especially in a league that valorizes and praises people being political. Like, that's not complicated. To sit there and say that it's complicated when the truth is it's all about money. It's that you don't want to get the NBA or the Warriors in trouble, so you say it's complicated. And the worst thing is, is this isn't avoiding the situation. There is a wonderful article written this week by Ethan Sherwood-Strauss about like what the NBA and Kirk could do better. And this was a core point. By saying it's complicated, you're actually endorsing China's message. You're endorsing China's with that, oh, it's not for you to interfere and talk about what happens in our country. The Uyghurs, it's complicated. Hong Kong, it's complicated. Better to not say anything at all. That is not holding your fire. That is basically parroting the Chinese message. If you can't say anything, they come out and say, I can't comment about that. 
I can't comment about that. Let's be honest about this. Let's be honest that I am worried about my pocketbook and the league's pocketbook as a whole. So I'm not going to say anything. Don't give me this crap about it's complicated. Is it complicated to say that someone should be able to tweet? Like last I checked, you value your ability to speak out. And I think that's something that's been really striking about this. Why I think this week was so valuable. It really, I think, opened people's eyes to what's going on here, to the reality of China, the reality of interacting with China. And this is something that I think those of us that follow the issue in the country closely have been aware of, been aware, particularly over the last four to five to six years of China's shift into even more sort of authoritarianism and the attempt to sort of export that to an increasing amount. But this week, I think suddenly the rest of America just sort of woke up like, oh, my God, like what is going on here? And let's be honest about it. Let's be clear about what's going on. It's not complicated. China is saying, if you want our money, we will tell you what to do. That article is fantastic. I mean, I'm assuming most folks have read your article this week, which was like, I think one of your best ones that you've ever written, it was fantastic. But that article you just referenced then in The Athletic is also worth reading. It's worth subscribing for. And there's this quote. I just want to say that James just endorsed subscribing to a sports website. That's how good it was. It was phenomenal. There are a couple of things that stood out, but one in particular stood out. He was talking to a Taiwanese journalist and the Taiwanese journalist kind of found the whole thing amusing. And he's like, yeah, the problem that you guys don't realize is when the Chinese pay you, they think that they're your boss. And basically, that's how they've been behaving. And that's how we've been allowing them to behave, like in terms of kowtowing. Now, going back to your article, and I think this was the thing that we just seem to have missed, like the quote from Clinton talking about like, when we're going to start engaging with China, it's going to be fantastic because economic freedom and liberal freedom, like the freedom that we associate in the West go hand in hand. And when we start exporting the economics into China, the liberal stuff, especially as a result of the internet, is going to go hand in hand. And there's this quote that he had around the Chinese think they're going to be able to control the internet. Well, good luck with that. It's going to be like nailing jello to the wall. And I would have agreed with Clinton. The thing that I just didn't realize, and it's really starting to become apparent right now, is that it's not us exporting liberalism into China. It's China, through the mechanism of economics, successfully exporting authoritarianism into the West. And it's absolutely terrifying. That's exactly right. I think there's a few important caveats to put on here. We put these caveats in our previous podcast about the US and China. They're probably even more important here. We are coming at this issue as unapologetically as sort of Westerners. And when we talked about China a few months ago, it was in the context of, look, we're giving sort of our perspective. We totally get the Chinese as a different perspective. I actually talked about that podcast, how I referenced how the U.S. took a lot of IP from England, you know, in the Industrial Revolution. And like, in some respects, like, it's a little rich for us to get upset about that sort of stuff now. And so, like, in an attempt to really sort of understand, you know, different points of view and those sorts of things. I would say in this case, it's not just, I don't want to just acknowledge that I'm coming at this from a Western perspective. It's that, like, this is the point. The point is, what does the Western perspective mean? What is entailed in that? 
it's something that is worth fighting for and preserving. And the point here, the thing to drive at is you talked about how China's export authoritarianism, and this was like such a moment of Western hubris and arrogance to think that we can build this road into China and it's going to be a one-way road, right? Like economic freedom is coming and political freedom is inevitably coming behind. And what should have raised a red flag about that is we talked about this in the podcast last week in the context of Facebook is like anytime you think you can have your cake and eat it too, you're probably missing something very, very fundamental and important about what's happening. And in this case, it just so happened that, oh, look, we can go to China and make a lot of money and pat ourselves on the back because we're importing freedom. Like, I mean, in retrospect, it's like, did we actually sell ourselves on that? We actually did that. We could have everything. We could get rich. We could make the world free. We could feel good about ourselves. And it turns out that as we've been discussing, technology is amoral. The internet is amoral. To connect everyone and everything can turn out very well, and it can turn out very poorly. And in this case, it turns out it's been much more effective and easier to your point, for China to export their controls on what people say. Again, we're talking about a tweet on a service that is banned in China. That is the issue here. It's not about something in China. It's not about breaking Chinese laws. This is about China wanting to determine who or what Americans can see in America. Like That's the direction this is going. And I want to be super clear. I've heard from a lot of Chinese nationals. They're like, well, you think we have rights? Don't we have the right to not watch the NBA? Absolutely, you have the right. Like the whole point here, I believe in free expression. If your free expression is represented by boycotting the NBA, be my guest. Now, there's questions as to what is the actual sense among the billion Chinese people as opposed to whatever was stirred up in this case. I think it's telling that the NBA is very much still there in China. And this whole thing was tamped down by the censors midway through last week. But be that as it may, if you want to boycott the NBA, go ahead, be my guest. My point I'm not speaking to the Chinese in this case. I am speaking to the West. I am speaking to American companies in particular and saying there is a value mismatch here. We in the West claim that free expression is a value, that free speech is a value, that you should be able to say what you think about your country, about another country, about whatever you want to say. And that is not the case in China. Like they said it quite clearly. That statement that the CCTV released when they said that they weren't going to televise the games, I'm going to quote it, quote, we are strongly dissatisfied and we oppose Silver's claim to support Maury's right of free expression. We believe that any speech that challenges national sovereignty and social stability is not within the scope of freedom of speech. Like that's a value statement. That is a fundamentally different interpretation of the freedom of speech. And my point of this article and my point here is, do you want to do business in a country That has fundamentally different values and has a demonstrated willingness to leverage its purchasing power to blackmail you to basically do what you do. The way around this is not to tell China to change. The way around this is to stop selling to China. Yeah, I'm coming around to the same point of view. The distinction I would draw in what you said, though, is that I feel that this is almost a collective action problem. And the Chinese are exploiting us. They're picking us off one by one. That market is so big and so tempting that executives in all these individual rooms are sitting there making the decision, well, 
There are a billion people there. It's one of the fastest growing markets. You're in the NBA. This is the fastest growing market that we have. Like America's starting to taper off. All this money's coming in from China. It's really difficult on an individual level. And also, there are decisions made that accumulate over time. Like Apple's first started going into China in the 90s in the middle of this sense that Clinton articulated that, oh, we're exporting freedom. And the classic example of a company that you know, benefited greatly from that. And for the record, benefited China. Like Apple employs well over a million people indirectly in China. I think it's like 1.5 or 1.6 million or something like that. Like it's been good for China. It's been good for Apple. It's been good for consumers. But it turns out that there may have been more of a price, a loan that was being taken out. And now payment is being demanded. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of that Nitschke quote, you stare into the abyss long enough. The problem is the abyss stares back. And like, that's what's becoming apparent. The abyss is staring back. But if we leave this at the level of individuals to make the decisions, I think we're going to struggle, whether it's individual countries, individual companies or individuals. And it's funny because the framing that I went back to relates to an article that I wrote and we discussed on this podcast. It was talking about research looking at what this notion of productive and unproductive entrepreneurship is. Basically, the thesis of the research was that you have all these entrepreneurs and they are just out there looking for opportunities and they will take the biggest and best opportunity that they can get. But a measure of the health of a society is the number of those entrepreneurs that channel their efforts into productive versus unproductive entrepreneurship. Apple, for example, like they are going to channel going into China because there are a lot of good reasons to doing it from an economic standpoint. They make lots of money. It's cheaper to produce there. It's a huge market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think using that framing, the place that I'm landing because of the impact it has on Western society, that doing business with China is actually unproductive entrepreneurship and that we need to start thinking about this from a regulatory perspective. I think regulatory perspective, you're actually several steps too far down the road. To me, what made this what I truly think was a seminal week. I think this week we will look back on historians look back on this week as being a meaningful week. And what was meaningful was I think this was the first time that it sort of clicked for the majority of Americans that I think to date China has been like Germany, right? It's like, Oh, they do a lot of manufacturing and you know, we're kind of broadly aligned. Yeah. We have our differences, but you know, whatever, that's a political problem. That's for the politicians to deal with. And now it's much more like actually no, we may be rowing in the opposite direction. Again, this is something that's been talked about and discussed on sort of like the elite level and in Washington, you know, and debate about the, the trade war and things on those lines. I don't think it's really registered for normal Americans until this week. And notably, the response is sort of universal and bipartisan in one direction. Like, this is outrageous. What are you doing telling us what to do? And the outcome of that awakening and shift in mindset is not something that's going to happen immediately. There's not going to be changes that are going to happen today or tomorrow. And the NBA is going to shut its mouth and it's going to play the games. It's going to get back to the States and we will see who, if anyone talks about this, but I think there's going to start to be decisions made on the margins that are going to be start to be made differently. And something like Apple is going to be one of the last because Apple is so much invested in China. It's going to be so costly and so difficult to unwind that and undo that. But there's going to be some other companies like, well, we could go into China or we could go to Vietnam or we could go to Bangladesh or whatever. And they're going to make a different decision or there's going to be a little more thought and care or, you know, we're going to cap our revenue exposure to China and make decisions according to those lines. So we never become too exposed. 
And it's something that's going to sort of accumulate and might there end up being a collective response, a government-led response that very well may be the correct outcome for the reasons you talked about, because you know it's very hard. Any company or individual acting alone, motivated by profit, it's going to be very difficult for them to make a values-based decision. They need sort of help to do that. But we're only going to achieve a consensus to create that sort of regulatory regime once there is a mindset shift. And I really feel like this week that started. And I think you can hear it on this podcast. I've avoided outright partisan politics for a very explicit reason. I felt it was not my place. Like Shachekery, it's very clear what it is about and what it is not about. I think that you can clearly pick up on my personal senses about lots of things if you read closely or follow closely. But it feels like for me, this is a time to pull the trigger. At the end of the day, you can view all the problems of the U.S., all the issues, all the challenges, all the things we fight about. And the great thing is we can still fight about them. We can come out and we can say the president is appalling. What we're doing on the border is awful. Or you can come out the other way and say, I think the Democrats are whatever language de jour on the right is. And guess what? The fact we can say that is actually a really big deal. The fact that it seems our fights are completely intractable and that we just go back and forth and that Elizabeth Warren can say, oh, look at Facebook, allowing you to run a fake ad and then run a fake ad and come out and criticize them. And Facebook can come out with their comments and going back and forth. And everyone's getting very heated about this, going back and forth each other. And you know what's going to happen? They're not going to all go to concentration camps. Like, that's a pretty big improvement. It's a massive improvement. I mean, I hope we get there. And I hope that the individual one by one awareness of this proves to be enough. But like before we recorded the start of this weekend, news came out that there was going to be a trade deal reached. And unsurprisingly to me, the stock markets reacted super positively. And it just feels to me like another example where in Western democracy, somewhere along the line, and again, there's interesting research on this that we can link to. Uh, HBS professor went back and looked at Congress's debates over the last hundred years and made this observation that back in the 20s and 30s, the focus was much more on what's good for democracy and economic second. And then somewhere along the line, We've slipped into the trap of what's good for economics. And then we allow econometric folks to like drive the debate. And the priority is like what's going to drive up the stock market? What's going to make us the most money? And the problem is, while so long as that remains the priority, I'm worried that it leaves us exposed to China. And that's a very hard thing to solve at an individual level. Yeah, but I mean, this is going to take time. I mean, and to your point, I mean, I think Apple has regained its crown as the most valuable country in the world on sort of news of this trade deal, or at least in futures. Uh, company, you said country. Close enough. Company in the world. So it's very, very interesting because you could read this week as being very bearish for Apple because one, they do actually get caught up in China issues, in which case they could have a direct impact on their business in terms of sales in China or in sort of interfering with their manufacturing. Again, I think it's important to note that while the Chinese government sort of projects the sense of being all powerful, at the end of the day, they are governing over a billion people and people do like iPhones and well over a million people are employed by Apple. There is concern there. It's say that people like the NBA. Like that's why I wasn't surprised that the controversy got tamped down. It was spun up and then Wednesday or Thursday, you know, it was like, nope, suddenly it's nowhere on social media, completely censored out and no more protests sort of allowed, which by the way, Again, I support the right of Chinese consumers to be upset at the NBA. By all means, like, let's go free expression. But don't tell me that this is completely genuine and pushed forward when it can also be shut down at the flip of a switch. Anyhow, 
<laughs> I agree with you on 100%, but given those are highly differentiated and effectively both the NBA and Apple have leverage over China, given the points you just made, which I 100% agree with, what I'm worried about is that's not the case with most folks. Like whether it's coal miners or milk farmers in Australia or soybean farmers in the United States, where China's dealing with the West, a lot of it is non-differentiated. Maybe it's like Mercedes-Benz or Audi cars. Like, yeah, it's nice, but like you can switch pretty easily and it's not the end of the world. And it's in those instances where, particularly given most of what China's buying, most of China's economic leverage is with goods that are effectively substitutable. They have a lot of power to keep pushing people to push the party line. Right. No, I agree. I agree. But I guess the the point that I'm making here is actually along with you. Like there is no discount seemingly applied to Apple for the possibility that this goes sideways in China. And the other thing is to make the investment to get out of China from a manufacturing perspective, to reduce the sort of leverage that China has over them, it's going to be a huge hit to margins. An entire infrastructure of manufacturing and logistics and suppliers is basically going to need to be brute forced by Apple in Vietnam or in Taiwan or wherever it might be. And, you know, Samsung, fortunately for them, has this all built up in South Korea. So they are out of China. They're out of China because they got their rear ends kicked by China. They had no more market. But it does goes to show you can manufacture a lot of phones without being in China. Like Samsung does it. But Apple is not in a position to do so. And, you know, there's the whole like Tim Cook doctrine, you know, like that he delivered in sort of a earnings call one time and everyone talks about it in sort of this reverential terms. And one of the core things in here is that we believe that we need to own and control the primary technologies behind the products that we make and participate only in markets where we can make a significant contribution. The actual capability to manufacture your products that you actually sell to pay the bills, that sounds like a pretty primary technology there. And it turns out, does Apple actually own and control that? Or does China? It's hard to overstate quite how complex and all these interdependencies, the supply chain, whether it's the phone or I just read a couple of examples of much simpler goods, like people trying to manufacture, whether it was glass or boots or things like that. And you get this interdependence and it all becomes localized and this knowledge. And as the goods improve over time, like that knowledge gets embedded in that local area and there are dependencies between suppliers and whatever, it's really hard to overstate how hard it is to just try. And it's not just like we're going to pick up a factory and move it. It's a spider web of all these things that build up over time. And you can't just pick up your factory and put it down somewhere else. You've got to try and move all those suppliers, move all that knowledge or find other suppliers with the same amount of knowledge. But of course they can't because we've been through 10 years of iPhone manufacturing and you look at that thing when it first got built and you look at it, what it is now. Now, it's orders of magnitude more complicated and sophisticated and just trying to pick that up and plop it down somewhere else. You just can't do it. No, it's exactly right. I'm glad you interject that. At best, this is a multi-year endeavor, like decade-long sort of endeavor. And even then, you may never get back to the state that you're at right now. And so all the incentives for Apple are to basically just hold out and just say what they need to say, ban what they need to ban, take out what they need to do. And there were a couple things that were unique about this week that's worth noting. Previously, Apple has, for example, they removed a bunch of VPN apps from the Chinese app store. And I defended them at the time. Like I said, it's local law. Like at the end of the day, if China says you don't get to have these apps in the app store, you don't get to have the apps in the app store. They decide. But 
those apps were still available in the US App Store, for example, or the Taiwan App Store or the Australian App Store. This week was different in that that Hong Kong app was not just taken down out of the Hong Kong App Store. It was taken down worldwide. So again, it was something new and unique of China extending what you could or could not do worldwide, not just within their borders. You have to question Apple moved all iCloud data into China because according to Chinese law, and yes, it's all encrypted. No one knows exactly where or if those encryption keys are. We can certainly surmise or guess. I will say that all of my friends in China do not use iMessage. They use WhatsApp. We can have a discussion about Facebook in a moment. But again, that is Chinese law. They had to move it there. Well, what's going to happen in Hong Kong? Is the Hong Kong data in China? Or are there encryption keys there? Like, what happens if there starts to be demands for these keys or for data access outside? Again, the reality is Apple is so exposed here and so dependent on China that it's going to be very hard for them to push back. And it makes all of Apple's lecturing about how they care about users' rights and all that sort of stuff and how other tech companies are evil uh, ring awfully hollow. I'm sitting here like I can feel my blood rising. There is a specific conversation I'm thinking back to between you and I when Apple went ahead and revoked Facebook's security certificates as a result of Facebook using the certificate to put effectively a VPN on folks' phones that allowed them- With their permission, remember. Yes, with their permission. And they revoked the certificates. And I was like, you know what? I'm glad Apple stuck it to Facebook. You know, it's nice to have someone in my corner who I feel will do the right thing on behalf of the users. And they do that because I pay Apple the money. Apple has my interests at heart, as opposed to Facebook, who have the interests of advertisers at heart. Well, you know what? After getting up on that soapbox. In fact, I feel proud of the way that Apple's behaved in so many of these instances, whether it's San Bernardino, whether it's what they did to Facebook. Yeah, maybe the means weren't great, but I felt like they did the right thing. And you were the one at the time that said, well, you want to be careful because it's very Machiavellian. Like You might like what they did, but do you like the fact that they have all this power? And right now, your words are ringing in my ears. I feel like honestly an idiot for supporting them. It makes me so frustrated because they don't have my interests at heart right now. They have exposed themselves so heavily to this authoritarian regime that when it comes down to their users in Hong Kong who want that app or me, if I want that app and what the Chinese government says they should or should not be posting on the app store. And by the way, like you said, there's no other app store for me to go to and download this app. I can't get it. And that's because Apple cares more about what the Chinese government thinks than what the right thing to do is. This came up a few weeks ago. It's easy in these situations to sort of pick on hypocrisy and certainly be wary of there, but for the grace of God, go I, because heaven knows, I'm sure we can all be hung on our own petards, as it were. But Google wrote this breakdown of this iOS exploit on the Project Zero blog, and this write-up could not have been more geeky. Like It was literally like thousands and thousands of words of code and explaining how it worked. And this is something Project Zero does. They find vulnerabilities and the interesting ones they will write about. And they've written about Android vulnerabilities. They've written about Chrome vulnerabilities. They've written about Windows vulnerabilities. They've written about other Apple vulnerabilities in the past. And Apple came out with this statement that was 
<laughs> astonishing. It was basically like accusing Google of trying to make them look bad, of going on saying that this is not a big deal. It only affected a few people. Don't worry about it. And they will, by the way, it's already fixed. And it turns out the few people that were affected were the Uyghurs in China who made the concentration camp reference before. The Uyghurs are in those camps and pervasive surveillance, spying on everyone, the whole sort of reporting thing, the worst things that you think about when it comes to sort of authoritarian regimes, but made worse by the fact of technology, technology making it possible to do this sort of invasive spying and surveillance at scale and not accruing to advertising, to your point, accruing to freedom or free or not free. And in this case, the sites, the very few people that are limited were Uyghur oriented sites. And the few people that are limited were the Uyghurs who are in this sort of terrible situation. And for Apple to come out and say, no big deal. Google stopped trying to make us look bad. We're the best. We protect user privacy. Oh, and you know, to have Tim Cook regularly making statements, basically saying that Facebook and Google are evil, previously saying that they sold data, which was always not true. And unfortunately, he's sort of corrected his language about that. But the level of self-admiration that you sort of get from Apple. And then when they were shown to have screwed up to be like, oh, stop trying to make us look bad. And then you look at it in the full context of the way they're actually operating their business. I mean, yeah, I am a little tired of the hypocrisy. The extent to which Apple has focused on privacy and made it a core part of its strategy, it talks about it so much. It's painted itself in contrast to all its other competitors as so focused on privacy, the importance of privacy, they're running ads on it. They have elevated this topic to it being the lofty talking. It's defined in terms of human rights. And like, I can't help but think when we reflect on this specific incident, the folks that are living at risk of concentration camps in China based on surveillance on their phones. Apple, you want to talk about human rights? Which humans? Is that all humans or is that just humans that aren't inside of China? (laughs) I mean, yeah, I do believe in human rights. Obviously, the discussion about privacy is a very complicated one. I wrote a piece a few weeks ago when we were not podcasting about I feel the extreme focus on online privacy is maybe mistaken in part because of the other harms that happen online that you know, an overt focus on privacy can obscure. And also sort of the fact that being digital, the accumulation of data is sort of a natural state of affairs. And maybe we need to be much more concerned about sort of online offline. But that does not mean that I don't think that, for example, privacy, I could believe that privacy is a human right. Maybe just my definition of privacy or the line to be drawn might be slightly different. I certainly believe that free speech is a human right. I believe that the freedom to assemble is a human right. Now, does this make me a Westerner? Damn straight it does. That's what I said at the beginning of this podcast. Like I am coming at this quite clearly with the acknowledgement that different cultures and different societies view these issues differently. And that's fine. But we need to acknowledge that fact. Again, this is not about saying China good, China bad, U.S. good, U.S. bad. What it's saying is we are viewing this, broadly speaking, in fundamentally different ways. And Once you accept that fact that we view the world in fundamentally different ways, that's the time to heavily consider, is it actually right and good and true to those values that you claim to hold to do business with someone that does not hold those values? Because it turns out, particularly given the nature of liberalism, that the shit's going to flow downhill. You know, there's the idea of the paradox of tolerance, right? Which is everyone should be tolerant. Then the question, should we be tolerant of the intolerant? And if you're tolerant of the intolerant, the intolerant come in and basically, you know, are intolerant to everyone. And then that's bad for everyone. The idea is you have to draw lines, right? To allow 
freedom to flourish, to allow free enterprise to flourish, to have this sort of economic freedom that we hold dear. It turns out, as China, I think, is demonstrating, you have to draw a box around that, draw lines about that so that the best parts of that freedom can't be used against itself. Right. And the Chinese have been very disciplined about drawing that box. What's scary is that it's like there's a one-way trap door. And so, companies like Facebook, companies like Google are unable to operate inside of China. They know well enough to control, like these are ideas that they don't want infiltrating China. They want to control that flow of information. We have been, as you say, very tolerant. We're allowing Chinese companies in these spaces to come into the West and start to operate. And the example of TikTok, which is on a technical and application level, the fact that they've managed to gain traction in the social networking space is absolutely phenomenal and is a credit to them. What worries me a hell of a lot more is that they are based in China. They are subject to Chinese restrictions and flows of freedom of speech. They hold Chinese values. It's a Chinese company. And it becomes a popular application in the West by which people gain information. And you might be thinking, well, it's just memes. What does that matter? Well, try searching for Hong Kong on TikTok and see what comes up. Like you detailed it in your article. And I think it's a fantastic point. Like this is flowing one way. It's not flowing the other. And like, I want to live in the West. Like I've visited China. There are many things I love about it. I have many friends who are Chinese but I don't want to live there because if I started saying stuff like this in China, I would worry what would happen to me. Now that's starting to sneak out of China over here. Like we think twice before we start to air these opinions because of the ramifications that might happen. And that's not what the Western liberal principles are about. Yeah. And again, to be clear, like the worst thing that we can expect in this podcast is people are going to be mad at us online. Like we're going to get angry emails. We're going to get angry tweets. I might lose some subscribers. And you know what? That's part of the game. That's part of the deal, right? We get to say what we want and other people get to decide whether they want to hear it or not. And they can decide to tell us that we're full of it, that we're Westerners, we're unfair, we don't understand the Chinese context. It is complicated. You know, you don't understand what it means to govern a billion people in a country that has, you know, traditionally fragmented and been breaking apart for 2,000 years. I get all that. I understand to the greatest extent possible, given my background, the context here. And again, I certainly have my own personal views on what I would want a government to look like, broadly speaking, but I'm actually not even here saying how China should or should not govern itself. What I am here saying is if China is going to export its authoritarianism, then we need to think about should we blow up that bridge, the bridge by which that exporting is happening. And again, it's a bridge of our construction. It's a bridge that we have made tremendous amounts of money on, we being the West. And it's a bridge that we need to seriously question what sacrifices did it end up entailing at the end. Again, I'm speaking to the West. I'm speaking to Western companies. I'm speaking to that startup that is thinking, wow, if we could get X percent of the Chinese market, that really accelerate and what would that do to our valuation? I'm speaking to those companies that are not yet in a position where Apple is in. I mean, we can sit here and dump on Apple all we want. And frankly, like, what else are they going to do? They're sort of deeply and fundamentally screwed as far as this goes. Again, I would like if they could tone down on the telling everyone how much better they are. I mean, again, if we want to get in this debate, let's do Apple versus Facebook. Facebook, which is not in China, for whatever reason you want to get into. But also now Facebook has the luxury. They impose a policy. They will not store data in a country that does not have a democratically elected government. So they don't have data centers in Russia, for example. They don't have data centers in China, obviously. They're not even there. But they have the luxury of taking that approach because they're not being blackmailed by anyone. And, you know, 
it certainly sounds a lot better. I mean, so, yeah. Are there questions and concerns about Facebook and its treatment of privacy? Absolutely. We've debated it ad nauseum, but let's not get on our high horse and, and like actively call other companies evil, which Tim Cook has done. Again, it's this whole context of the fact that we can do that is freedom in and of itself. The fact we can fight about politics, the fact that we can sit here and I mean, like <laughs> the degree of opprobrium that Trump gets from everyone deserved or not in uh, probably largely deserved. He gets mocked by comedians. Those NBA teams that are suddenly have no comment on China refuse to go to the White House to meet him. Again, none of this is to defend Trump. It's to emphasize the fact that the degree of freedom that we have is just completely unappreciated by so many. And hopefully this sort of wakes people up to that reality. There's something about what you just said then. We live in an environment where we have free political expression and we can risk offending politicians and there are no economic consequences. And yet, that's not the Chinese model. And the fact that those same NBA players refuse to go to the White House, but are happy going over to China and are very good now at keeping their mouths shut because they know who's paying their checks. Like, we need to call it. Like, when Trump came in with this trade war and Peter Navarro, I thought the man was a wingnut. I really thought that when we started imposing tariffs on China, this was going to end very poorly for us. It turns out it's had much more of an impact on China. And the last few weeks has just made me realize, like, guys, we're dealing with an authoritarian government that has expansive inclinations, like what's happening in the South China Sea. They lock up dissenting voices. They throw ethnic minorities in concentration camps. Like the last time we dealt with an authoritarian government like this, it ended up in a world war. It feels like we're a frog in boiling water. Instead of being dropped in the boiling water, the temperature is slowly being risen on us because of these economic ties. But it's really starting to scare me. I think probably the better analogy is maybe more the Cold War. But I think it's a useful one to sort of think about in that regard, because the U.S. did not have factories in Russia <laughs> riding for the U.S. customers, right? We had factories in Europe. But again, Facebook has this luxury, right? They can build data centers in countries that broadly share liberal values, and they're able to do that because they're not in China for all intents and purposes. That should be a guiding principle broadly. The big mistake was thinking that economic freedom would lead to political freedom, and it turned out that political freedom should have been the precondition to take advantage of economic freedoms. Because money, just like tech, and this is sort of the conclusion of my article, money is amoral. And if all that matters is money, guess what goes out the door? Your morals. And that's precisely what is happening. Yeah. Again, each one of these incidents feels isolated. And if there's one thing I'm grateful to that GM of the Rockets for, it's this was almost like the straw that broke the camel's back. All of a sudden, attention snapped to realize exactly all the instances where this has happened. And it sums up to a picture that's actually really pretty damning. It is. And like I said, I think this week was meaningful. I really do. Again, Nothing concrete is going to happen right now. That's not how this works. Like, this is the U.S.'s strength. If you want to view it from a sort of competitive aspect, this is the advantage that the West has is 
yet we have no top-down mechanism, which you know, people so often lust after. You see this a lot, I think, in tech, and you see it from VCs, I think, a fair bit. Like They're kind of jealous of the top-down nature of how things can get done in China. And the reality is, yeah, maybe if we could have someone top-down come in and put up a great firewall and block TikTok and force these companies out and do what the government says, yeah, we could fix the China problem, but then we've lost the very thing that we're fighting to protect. So all that to say is it will take time. It takes actually changing public opinion broadly. It takes waking people up. It takes changing the core sort of consensus, you know, that undergirds the country. And I think that this week was really important in that happening. And we need to be okay with that taking time. Like as much as we were sort of like the desire for that authority and power the embrace of it comes again with losing what you have. And the reason it's important to hold on to what we have is that's how you compete in the long run. Yes, China has a big market. Yes, they have over a billion consumers. Yes, they have top-down industrial policy that is going to push hard to fill in all the missing gaps that they have, you know, that's been really been exposed by this trade war. But at the end of the day, to actually create new things to the world, to create sort of innovation and innovation outside of innovation around social control, which is, you know, it turns out if you have every sort of interaction going through a few apps. That's very great for keeping tabs on everybody. So yes, WeChat's very innovative. It's been very innovative to the Chinese government's benefit. But leaving that aside, like freedom, the ability to say what you want, to think what you want, to throw stuff out there, that has to be the US's long-term competitive advantage when it comes to sort of the marketplace of ideas or in sort of the West broadly. And so even as we think about how to respond and the reason to respond is to preserve that freedom, we need to preserve that freedom along the way, if that makes sense. I must have drunk the Kool-Aid because once upon a time, you saying our competitive advantage is freedom, I'd have put that in the, oh my God, it's so hokey. How am I not throwing up right now? But you're 100% right. And I think the concentration camp stuff was where I started to wake up to this a few months. I mean, it had always been in the back of my head in Australia, but I'd never really pay close attention. The concentration camps and realizing that tech companies, you can't morally Well, I mean, Cisco built the Great Firewall and lots of US tech is in this surveillance state in Xinjiang. Right. But it's one thing, okay, they want to censor. I guess that's their right. But the point at which you're starting to potentially be selling AI technology that gets used for facial recognition, that gets used to throw people in concentration camps, you can't do business with that. It started to tweak like, okay, I don't know that it's going to be easy for us to do business with this regime in the future. And then this week and just the realization that it's the abyss staring back into us, it certainly changed my mind. And I hope after listening to this podcast, it's changed a few other folks' minds as well. Yeah. And I know this wasn't a podcast like any other. We were not doing sort of in-depth business analysis here because this isn't about high-end business strategy. It's about values. It's about the core things that drive you. And At the end of the day, strategy is about decisions. It's about trade-offs. It's about choosing one thing and not doing another thing. And what we are arguing for and pushing here, and yes, it sounds hokey, you know, yay, let's go freedom. At the very core, what's the core thing that actually matters most to you? How would Apple answer that? How would the NBA answer that? I mean, I don't know. They're in pretty deep, but how would the next company answer that? How would the next company considering their market answer that? How would Facebook answer that? I can imagine Facebook is extremely grateful and relieved to be in the position that they are and maybe something that Apple might be a little bit envious of. Yes. I mean, true. 
through good luck, but regardless of good luck or not, like I think it's incumbent on the folks who maybe haven't had the good luck of having been forced out for reasons not of their choosing to start to figure out how to deal with it and not to deal with it on an issue by issue, but to stand back and get some perspective on this. And I feel like that's what this week has provided for me. It's taken it from a issue by issue thing into let's step back and get perspective on it. And let's think about how we're going to address it before the next issue arises. Yep. I completely agree. Well, yeah, it's, I'm scared. It's scary to post this podcast. It's scary because it's scary to go out there and basically argue something that this is the way it should be because this is what I believe. Like I'm not coming out here with spreadsheets. I'm not coming here with numbers or facts. I just believe at my core that this is important and what matters. But at the same time, the entire reason why I feel nervous about that is coming out and people being mad and people, you know, making fun of you like, Oh yeah, you know, go freedom or what are you? Some sort of Trumpkin or something. It's like, no, like I value the fact that I can sit out here and, completely destroy and complain about and say the worst possible things about the president. Like that's actually a pretty great thing. I think it's worth keeping in mind broadly, like freedom is a good thing. Like being able to say what you want is a good thing. And maybe broadly speaking, we should be a little more sensitive and appreciative that people say stuff. They could even say the wrong stuff. And you know what? What's most important is the ability to say it at all. Yeah. And I hear you on the, like, I have a little bit of trepidation about this. At the same time, how the hell can I criticize all these folks for saying these things if I haven't got the courage to come out and say, and I have much less at stake. And I mean, I guess that also gives me a degree of empathy for them because like they do have much more at stake and I'm criticizing them. I have much less. And yet still, I feel trepidation about this. Yeah, no, it's very true. It's easy to criticize. It's hard to do. It's hard to live by your values. And the best way to sort of accomplish that is to never get in a situation where you have to make impossible choices in the first place. Yeah. And I feel like that's a pretty good place to wrap up. Very good. Well, it is Monday. The week is just getting started. We are at a new time, but in maybe a new posture, but it was good talking to you. Yeah, it was an important topic, I feel like. For sure. For sure. I will talk to you soon. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right. Yeah. Bye-bye.